Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Immigration has become the flashpoint in the presidential campaign as 500,000 Mexicans who live in New York City, many of them young children, worry whether they or their parents will be deported. Born in the Bronx and the child of Mexican immigrants, Ariselis Lucero, a former Wall Street executive, has rededicated her life to educating Mexican children from 18 months through their college years. Ariselis, what is it like for a Mexican child today to grow up with a threat of deportation hanging over him or her and the proposals to build a wall between the United States and Mexico? And last but not least, the constant demonization of all Mexicans. Well, I think it's been very tough for children. Um, the most recent experience of young children being terrorized and living through a horrible experience and the feeling of having their, um, possibly having their parents taken away from them just happened this January 2016 um, when there was an announcement to deport, ICE was doing raids um, for certain categories of people. Um, and there was a lot of fear in the community, a lot of children crying, feeling like their parents couldn't come back home or wouldn't be coming back home. Um, and so we had to do a lot of work with parents um, to kind of sort of talk through that with their children and help them feel safer. But um, in January, when there was this announcement about the raids, there were a lot of families that were very nervous. Um, they weren't going out shopping. They weren't taking their kids to school. Um, and there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of fear. And so um, that sort of reminds me of my experience growing up and how families know and children are, are told are shared that there's an undocumented person and that it's something that you really don't talk about and that there's a fear around how, that. How many of these, uh, how many of the parents were actually deported? Do you know? Do you have any idea? There were 121 across the entire country. It was really what a lot of community members feel and a lot of immigration activists. It was kind of sort of a scare tactic um, for people who wanted to come. Um, it was really targeted to the Central American families. And uh, part of the, the recent um, immigration wave that we saw with unaccompanied minors that started around two years ago. Um, and so the target was really the Central American um, families. However, it, it was useful in spreading fear across the entire communities and also to, to send a loud and clear message across the borders that you shouldn't really be coming here because anybody who got caught um, was a priority for deportation and that pretty much the United States wasn't going to allow people just to stay here because they had young children. Um, and so it was a clear message that I think um, was targeted specifically, you know, against families. And that's something that immigration activists have been working towards not separating families, especially, you know, women and children um, who often face horrible conditions in the detention centers. 
in Mexico, and a lot of them are going back to Mexico. The prevailing, the prevailing wisdom in the media, of course, is that all these people are flooding into America, racing down, running into homes, um, tearing them up, running, doing this, doing that, when actually it's the other way around. They're going flowing back over the border. Why is that? Well, there there's a lot of theories around why that may be happening. Um, a lot of it has been, and, and this may change um, in the next couple of, of months or years, but the construction industry really took a hit um, and has been taking a hit for quite some some time. And so I think it, it has to do with jobs and it has to do with opportunities. And people are just, you know, resettling back. It's been for some families years um, that they've seen family members. Some people have been deported. And so the option is just to bring your family members back so that you can reunite and resettle back in Mexico. Um, for the last year, Obama has been the president who has deported the most amount of people under his presidency. And so I think, one, families are trying to reunite. Um, and two, I think that there's probably less opportunities um, in the job industries and job um, that they seek. I was wondering about um, about the kind of work that you do. You work for an organization. You're the executive executive director of something called Massa Mex Ed, which is known as Massa. And your job is to help a lot of these people, a lot of these families, especially young people, try to get over here, get over, get into the American into the American system, become either become citizens or either legally or illegally. And I assume things like what Donald Trump is doing, saying build a wall between the United States and Mexico, um, scares them mm -hmm. and makes them, makes them feel insecure. Yeah. So right now we have several kinds of individuals that we support at MASA, and we focus on education. But with education and, and accessing different opportunities that may be available, um, comes a lot of, of support that families need in order to help them navigate this new system. Um, new system? Well, for them, it's a new system because they're new to this country. And so for people who don't know how to navigate, there are still opportunities. There's great opportunities to continue to um, succeed in the United States. However, new immigrant families are living in fear. Um, are afraid of revealing that they even exist and exposing their children. Um, and so most of the time they hide and they don't access critical services that they can access. Um, and so MASA as an organization, our primary goal is to make sure that children and young adults and adolescents are able to succeed academically in this new, in this new country. Um, did they start to leave school when Donald Trump began uh, his actually tirade, the only way to describe it, saying he was going to get even with all those horrible Mexicans coming across the border? They um, worried they were coming for them, perhaps? That the I, we government? didn't see that much people leaving school. We saw more of the adult parents who had children not taking their children to school. Young adults, however, have a lot a lot more to worry about because if they're undocumented, their access to higher education is pretty limited. They don't have access to any sort of aid. And so hearing this, this anti-immigrant rhetoric now at a national level and knowing that this may be a candidate that 
people that Americans are going to choose really does make them feel pretty awful and even more so unwanted. And but there are people, especially young adults, who do end up making it to the high school system, who were fleeing for very legitimate reasons, who were fleeing because of violence in their country, in Mexico or in Central America. And so really, it's it's a it's a gamble on their life, whether they, they stay here and take it and try to make it here or go back and face some very violent conditions in their home countries. And so they're stuck in, in, in the middle. Why don't they just, why do they come all the way up to New York? Why don't they stop maybe in Florida or North Carolina or any of the other states that are south that are near, which has weather conditions which are similar to what they experience in Mexico? Why here? Well, I think there may be two reasons. One, immigrants usually flock to places where they may already have some sort of roots, some sort of community. New York, New York City specifically is a melting pot. You can find different, especially in Queens, it's probably one of the most diverse um, boroughs, uh, the South, the Bronx as well. And I think... Well, you guys are located in the South Bronx, Yes, right? we're located in the South Bronx. Our, we provide direct services in the South Bronx. But when it comes to supporting immigrant families, um, especially around um, immigration and protecting their rights and making sure that they're giving some sort of due process or know what they're up against with um, U.S. ICE, um, we do citywide outreach. To ICE, sure. what is ICE? Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency. Do you know, and a lot of people just use that acronym, but they're just coming. These are mainly federal agents, right? Yes, these are federal agents that enforce um, immigration policy. So if you have a deportation order, they will be the individuals who come knocking at your door looking for you. Are they rough? Some can be. They can lie to get you to open the door, more so than being rough. Once they are in, I, I, I think they are there to enforce the law, and depending on how you react, the, the, the outcomes of that interaction may come out very differently for different people. Our guest on this edition of Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO 88.3 FM and WBGO.org is Ariselis Lucero, the executive director of MASA, a South Bronx organization known as MASA MexEd, an organization that serves the special needs of a growing group of Mexican students in New York City. And to understand how Mexican students react and what they need, you just look in the mirror, don't you? Yes, absolutely. Tell us your story. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up, um, why you decided to abandon Wall Street, and do the kind of uh, good government, good works that uh, a lot of other people would would ignore. Well, um, my parents actually came from Mexico in the late 70s. Uh, they barely finished the third grade in their home countries. Grew up in very, very poor conditions and grew up in towns that had very limited job and economic opportunities and, and mobility. And my grandfather had come to the United States. When was that? In the early 50s, 60s as part of the Bracero program. And so he was the first to migrate to the United States and understand what the impact of the dollar and how much you can buy in a country like Mexico. And back then, um, it was a lot. Um, it was a big difference. And so 
my father. What did he come here to do, your grandfather? My father came to my grandfather came to pick um, fruits in Texas, and I'm not exactly sure which fruits. <laughs> But but he um, picked them anyway. Yes, and the Bracero program was was main, mainly a guest worker program to bring labor, cheap labor, into the United States, and it was temporary. And people got to go back and forth um, as long as you had this this guest worker permit, and it worked actually quite well to some extent. Um, and so through that, my dad was exposed to the United States. My grandfather was able to bring him legally here first. Um, Texas? To No, to New York. So my grandfather, after the Bracero program, decided to migrate up north. Um, and why? Again, I'm sure there was already a group of people who were here. They from early on in New York City, the Mexicans that migrated um, to New York mainly were working in the restaurant industry. And it was pretty tough. I understand that if after you got paid, you better have a whole bunch of friends around or else you'd be beaten up and, and you'd be, have your uh, wages stolen from you. Yes. So I grew up in a house with a lot of migrants. My parents um, brought over a lot of their their family and friends from their hometowns. And while growing up, um, they created these groups to go pick each other up on Fridays when migrants, when they would be paid. And so these groups had to be created to go pick up people from the train stations, Longwood train station, Longwood off, the Avenue. Six, off the six train, um, to make sure that by the time they got home, they weren't robbed. And so who would rob them? It were people from the neighborhood who understood that they were migrants, who understood that they were undocumented. We grew up— um, Were they Hispanic? Th- we grew up in um, the South Bronx, which was predominantly Puerto Rican and African American. Um, and so it was in the 80s. It was when the Bronx was burning, uh, dilapidated housing all around, um, crack houses. And so there was there were a lot of people who were desperate for resources. And, and so— the undocumented Mexicans living in that neighborhood were definitely a target. And so I grew up seeing that. I also grew up um, with largely the Puerto Rican community stepping in um, to support the community that that was building or the Mexican community that was growing in the South Bronx. Is it true that you had as many as 25 people in an apartment? Yes. So our apartment was a four-bedroom apartment. um, And at any one given time, there were between five or six families living in the apartment. Were they documented or undocumented? No, all of them were undocumented. Um, That was risky, though. Risky for you, risky for your parents. Yeah, but, you know, at that point, you really don't understand. I certainly didn't understand the risk. I saw a lot of pain and hurt, and I really was confused about why people left home if they were so miserable. I just didn't get it until my parents became documented um, after IRCA's, uh, the amnesty program in 1986, and they were able to, to, to get their documents. And for the first time, we traveled to Mexico together, and I was able to see my parents' town and the very, very poor conditions. Um, the level of poverty was extreme, and I finally understood why people had to leave. They had nothing to eat. They and had nothing were, to wear. And you were born... I was born in Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx, and it was vastly different from from what I 
encountered, even going even going from the South Bronx where everything was already dilapidated and like the housing stock was horrible, I found another place in Mexico which had much worse living conditions. I was wondering, did you consider yourself a Mexican American or an American who was Mexican? You know, we always grew up in a house full of pride of being Mexican, and I w- we were always singled out for being Mexican. So I was always told that I was Mexican. But when I got to Mexico, I was told that I was American, that I was a gringa. And so a that- gringa because you're a woman, not a gringo if you're a guy, right? <laughs> exactly, which was really odd to me. Um, for the first time, I'm like I'm a gringa in you know a place other than, like, the United States. And so I always considered myself Mexican or Mexican-American. We have some very, very... My parents did a very good job of making sure that we understood our culture and that we were very close to our grandparents. And so after they became documented, um, we started to travel to Mexico very often. You and your two sisters. And you didn't learn how to speak English for a long time, did you not? How How did that work? Actually, I I had I I grew up speaking English, um, but until I got into into um, Head Start, and so I don't know if you remember the Head Starts program have a very long history in um, New York, but one of my sisters actually um, was left behind in Mexico for five years because my parents got deported. And so they had no choice but to return, and my sister got sick, and they couldn't bring her back. And How'd so they, they get deported? Why were they deported? Street. Just my dad was walking in the street, and this is why it's very, um, it's very what happened in January with these families and these raids, and the fear around that is something that we lived through in the 80s. My dad got picked up. And you saw that? His, oh, I didn't see that, but I, I knew. I wasn't born by that time. So it was the the oldest sister, um, and she was recently. It was this was actually 1979, when my dad got picked up and he got deported, and so my mom followed him, and my sister stayed behind in Mexico for and then stayed there for five years and had to come back and learn English here. She's actually the best English speaker out of all three of us, <laughs> which is pretty ironic. And your sister actually wound up in the wound up. Uh in the army, in the military? Yes. So one sister um, wound up in, in the army and served in Iraq um, and Afghanistan. She right now um, is working um, as part of the National Guard and is helping write policy for women, women in combat. So we're very proud of her. Um, and my other sister is a computer programmer at uh, of another institution. You know, a lot of people would uh, look at what happened to you and make a movie out of it. <laughs> South Bronx, elementary school, valedictorian, um, high school. Tell us, tell us about how that, how that all happened. And why do you think it happened? What made you have so much of a drive? So I, I think knowing and understanding, and I think this was what happens with a lot of Mexican immigrant parents. They come here for a reason. They... They don't want to leave, but they have no option. And so the best that they can do is instill in their children this this love for education and work ethic. And my parents were really, really strict with us. Um, they didn't know how to navigate the systems, but we were very fortunate to have people around 
Um, I had a Puerto Rican nanny who pretty much, in addition to feeding me a lot of rice and beans, <laughs> was able to like really help us um, navigate the system. What does that mean? What I just did? Navigating uh, the system. Navigating the system means understanding um, the complex New York City public school system, the healthcare system, um, the access to free programs. She's the reason why I ended up in Head Start at three years old. Um, and what was her name? Remember? No. Yes, I do. Her name was Lucy. 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 And you end up at DeWitt Clinton High School in a special program. Yes. So I ended up um, in the College Scholar Program. And at that time, do at Clinton High School, um, was known for its Macy's program and for the College Scholar Program. And so if you were interested in either medicine or just access to college, which I thought that the entire school should focus on access to college, but <laughs> that's the way the high schools work, um, then you went to the College Scholar Program. And then you wound up in Middlebury College, which is hardly the kind of place I would think any Mexican would wind up in, Mexican-American or American who want to be Mexican. Yes. <laughs> yes. So through the Posse Program. Um, the Posse Program built because a lot of people wanted to have a lot of people who were like them to protect them and to Try to ease them through the system. That's why they were called posses, right? Old-fashioned word. Yes. So the posse was, and they were very creative in their approach. But this actually came from a, a one of the students. There was the founder, Debbie Beale, um, spoke to a student, and, and she used to be a youth counselor, and she was sending kids away already to these very selective colleges, but who were like remote just like a Middlebury, and they were coming back. They weren't graduating. And so what he said when she interviewed him was, if I would have had my posse with me, I would have stayed. And so she had this brilliant idea of sending kids in posses to these remote and selective colleges so that they had a better chance of making it. So your posse got you to Middlebury College. I'll tell everybody who the posse person is. It's Aracelius Lucero. Our guest on Conversations with Alan Wolper, she's the executive director of MASA, an organization that serves students of Mexican origin in New York City. So here we are. We're in Middlebury, and Middlebury is not the kind of place you expect to see people of dark skin. No. In fact, it's the kind of place you don't, you don't see people who are making less than a million dollars a year, I would think. Yes. What was it like when they saw you? Hard? Hard for you? It, I think it was hard for both. Um, I One of my first experiences, which was very sad, was the first day that I got to Middlebury was someone coming up to me, um, one of the people, one of a girl from my floor, my dorm room, and I thought she was going to be friendly, and I said hi. <laughs> and she said, oh, you're one of the lucky ones that got in. And so that stuck with me because obviously – I wasn't. I felt like I wasn't welcome there. You were valedictorian in your elementary school, and you had all these incredible grades. Probably had SATs that are ridiculous. I won't even ask you because I know how mine were. <laughs> and I, I don't understand why they would they feel that maybe they were putting so much money. Probably got about. I think your scholarships was worth something like two hundred thousand dollars. Yes, it's a lot of money. Yes, a lot, was, of a lot of jealousy. Yeah, perhaps. I I think there. It was the second year I arrived um, in the second year of the program. 
the first year of the program, they were very successful and made a lot of connections. However, there was still a lot of people who didn't understand why there was a need for a posse in a school like Middlebury. And I think it was very obvious <laughs> why there was a need for a posse. Um, it was to increase the diversity of the school. But yeah, there was this, this idea around like perhaps they saw it as affirmative action, perhaps they thought that we weren't qualified. There was a lot of support in the school from teachers, deans, um, and even parents who did acknowledge that. So you had a show. They need, yeah, I did. We did. And, you know, we had some allies, some some pretty cool um, people who were supporting the program. But, yeah, it was, it was kind of a culture shock. I also, you know, wasn't on the track team or wasn't working out a million hours, you know, a week. Um, and so... I was eating pizza in my dorm room. It was just completely different. You have an urban kid in, you know, a floor that is predominantly white. And there was a lot of explaining, especially when they heard that I was from the South Bronx. They would ask me if I, like, woke up, you know, to gunshots every day, if I wasn't scared about walking. And I'm like, no, I'm actually scared of, like, the trees here. <laughs> a lot of ticks. Yes. Vermont is loaded with ticks. So you didn't play football or basketball or hockey, which they're very mm, famous for. No. But then, then all of a sudden there's an internship and you wind up at Lehman Brothers. And this was around 2004, 2005? 2002? 2003. I did an internship at Lehman Brothers. I was... In then it was still a quite a important um, brokerage place, yes. financial place in America, exactly. in New York especially. Yes. So, um, yes, I ended up doing an internship at Lehman Brothers, a summer internship. I had been doing other kinds of internships, community work and, and, um, and learning a new language in the prior summers. Um, during college, and so junior year, I decided it was time to do something in my in my field, and I was an economics major, so I applied to Lehman Brothers um, to do an internship. And what was it like when Lehman Brothers became one of the four organizations during 2008? That must have been tough. <sighs> that was really tough. Um, by that time, I was already managing um, part of a department, and it was really, really hard to see a lot of people who had put in 20, 25 years into um, the bank lose everything. Um, part of the, the, the benefits packages and the, and the bonuses that you received is also in Lehman stock. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I was fairly young at the time. I, no one believed that Lehman would, would come crashing, burning down. Um, and we slowly saw how the stock just started dropping. And so it was it, for two reasons, like just losing all of like your 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 investments and then your benefits as a consequence of working there so many years um, was pretty devastating. It, it was it was it was really hard to see, especially for people who had spent all of their lives there. Um, but you escaped with enough money to help your parents in the South Bronx uh, pay for their mortgages in the Soundview area. So it wasn't too bad for you. And you decided, as we come to the end of this, to sort of give of yourself to this community organization, MASA. Why? In about a minute. Yes. So I actually um, decided that I wanted to give back because I understood that the reason that I had 
made it was because I had a lot of support from a lot of people who cared and who were able to show I thought I was I had I was smart but I knew that I got lucky or and that there were people who were willing to help me and so I thought that the best use of my time in this world and what I have left of my life was to be able to provide that same support so that more kids can make it more kids that look like me could make it that look like you exactly yes <laughs> or they will <laughs> well they have okay well I want to thank you for sharing what it seems to be a kind of exciting and crazy life for you it's been very exciting I think this is the best job that I've had um, that I can remember, and I'm, I'm very happy that I chose to do this. Mentors to hundreds of young Mexicans in New York City. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Joanna Wolpe is the senior producer of our program, and Doug Doyle is the executive producer. Conrad Saguinetti is our engineer. You can listen to our long list of audio biographies by Googling Conversations with Alan Wolper. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Wolper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation. <laughs>